We're in the second week of a three-week series called Stories from the Seeds. What's interesting about the series is it's the most popular teaching series we do when measured by downloads on our website. And it's the most questioned series that we do. We get more questions about why do we take church time to do this, and yet at the same time, more downloads than any other teaching series by far. And uh, I want to remind you then why we do this. The New Testament of the Bible is basically the story of uh, the life of Jesus and his interaction with other people's lives. And so because we believe in Easter and a living Savior, by his spirit, he's still interacting with people's lives. And we have to go on telling those stories. And so we're committed to it. We're going to do it. It's very appropriate and, in our point of view, very biblical. Now, the three-week series is interesting. You, Those of you here last week heard Brian and Giselle Steenhook. Uh, great job. Next Sunday, right here, will be Jason Hadaman sitting right here in the front row. He'll be telling his story. And I was with him twice last week and a very, very powerful uh, story. You won't want to hear that. And today, um, uh, Scott Bennett is with us. One of my jobs is when our team decides who we're going to ask to do a story, uh, one of my jobs is to make the phone call and to inform this person that we're asking them. And when I first called uh, Scott, who, by the way, is my brother-in-law, my wife's sister's husband, he's going to tell you, he said, no, absolutely not. I am not doing that. And um, here he is yet. so um, this is a fun part. Uh, uh, one of the things I've loved, I told him on the way over, one of the things I loved about his story is uh, we're approximately the same age and the cultural ways God touched his life are some of the same cultural things that I experienced in my life. So um, we're eager to hear this. So Scott, come and uh, tell us your story. Good morning. Good morning. So <clears throat> Dave is my brother-in-law. And uh, when he asked me if I'd read my narrative story that I wrote in the Journey Leadership class, I said, uh, no, but thanks for asking. For those of you who know Dave, he doesn't argue or debate. He just keeps asking questions. So, Scott, tell me about the class. What would you think? How would you like it? And I told him that the Journey class was large. We had about 25 people. That it was long. It went eight months, once a week for about eight months. Uh, I thought that the material was engaging. I thought the leaders were engaging. And I thought my classmates were engaging. And it didn't take very long for me to grow close to my classmates until the narrative stories. And then, Dave, you can't believe these stories. They're amazing. Every one of them was powerful. And the people in the class, I love them all. They're wonderful. And then he reminded me that every person in this room, every story in this room, is just like that. Uh, Okay, I'll read my story. So as usual with me, I mapped out my narrative story just the way I wanted it. And when I was all done, I went back and read the instructions. (laughs) The instructions encouraged me to Seek God's gracious and active presence in the story of my life with the goal of being to better know Him and to better know myself. The instructions also encouraged me to go back and review the reflect and respond questions 
as they relate to my story. So I did that. The question that I landed on was this. What comes to mind when you consider being ushered into the same promise and the same covenant that God had with men like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Paul as it relates to Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine according to the power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and through Christ Jesus forever ever. Amen. Answer. Over time, I've come to believe that I'm capable of great things with the help of God. Things that are beyond my imagination according to his power at work within me. This is very good news if you're an individual who suffers from low self-worth. At the same time, I'm reminded of my great sin of the past and the sin I'm still capable of, especially within the depths of my thought life. I mourn that sin. For me, it's a very odd experience holding equally powerful and equally opposing forces in my hand at the same time. Great joy, great mourning, extraordinary, yet very frail. Thankfully, God blesses those who mourn and provides comfort. The definition of this blessing, empowered to prosper. The same power described in Ephesians 3.20. The power to no longer live a life in the grip of guilt. So just like these other men, I'm a man after God's own heart. The second instruction was to write a prayer as it relates to your narrative story. So here it is. Lord, quiet my mind. Lord, help me shift my focus from fear to faith. Remind me of your desires for me as I ponder your word. I pray for experiences that transcend reason. I want to know that you're real. And Lord, help me love you without resistance. So with these reflections in mind, I I split my narrative story into three areas of my life. Bondage, wandering in the desert, and the promised land. Bondage, my life of unbelief. I was born in 1950. I became a Christian in 1982. When that occurred, I looked back in total bewilderment because I had little faith background. I'd never consciously heard the gospel message, and I knew of no one on their knees praying for my salvation. So where's God's gracious and active presence in all of that? My parents are part of the greatest generation, products of the Depression and World War II. Neither were very demonstrative with affection, nor did they substantively communicate with me, nor did they seem much interested in my personal life. Both were gripped their entire lives with anxiety, which took the form of control, structure, and image. And I later learned that these behaviors were derivatives of fear. Thus, the fearful me was born and raised, controlling, structured, very mindful of my image. I call it the fake me. By the way, I do love my parents dearly. The 50s were actually an idyllic time for me. If my parents were arguing or had a bad marriage, I wouldn't have known. I grew up in a neighborhood full of kids. I belonged to a traveling sports team. And when I say traveling, I mean bicycles. 
Our neighborhood gang rode from neighborhood to neighborhood playing whatever sport was in season. No umpires, no parents. I have four brothers, including a twin, no girls. I grew up with 27 first cousins. All of them liked to have fun. I took a bath every Saturday night and watched Lawrence Welk. Great cars, great music. Man, was I ever naive. If there was any trouble in the world, I was unaware of it. I was thankful for my grandparents. They were affectionate. They did communicate with me, and they did seem interested in me personally. The 60s were a time of turmoil and rebellion. The 70s were a time of chasing the American dream. I now look back at a timeline of what I believe to be God events that shaped who I am through 1982. 1955, I was introduced to the Lone Ranger. He was the champion of justice. He was humble, courageous, loyal, honorable, trustworthy, kind. He fought for the underdog and so much more. I literally thought that justice was more beautiful than love and I wanted to be just like him. And at age five, I desired to be a man of character. 1956, Elvis gyrates on the stage of the Ed Sullivan Show live. I love this guy's haircut so much that I immediately switched to a pompadour. I spent hours combing my hair, worrying about my appearance. Some would say I was vain. Others were upset with me for hogging the mirror. 1957, Dr. Seuss publishes The Cat in the Hat. I was introduced to the love of reading and the love of story. 1956 through 1967, my parents deferred to the church for my religious training. I attended church and Sunday school, not with my parents, but with my grandfather. When I sat with my grandpa, he always put his arm around me. I associated going to church with security, that under his arm, it felt like a rock cleft for me. I learned that God was holy, 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 and that I was a Christian soldier. So my religious training was a positive experience, but I had no faith. 1959, Ben-Hur, the greatest movie ever made. Jesus was this ethereal character in the movie, and whenever he appeared, amazing things started to happen. It was my first realization that he was more than just a man. And at age nine, I desired to be like Jesus. 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I learned that we live in a very dangerous world, a world on the brink of nuclear war. It was my first experience with living in fear. It was my first experience with prayer. Pray only when you're in a bind. 1964, the British invasion, the Fab Four, the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan Show live. They were singing, I want to hold your hand. And I was singing, I want to hold any girl's hand. I was awakened to a new culture. I immediately want to exchange my pompadour for a mop top and pursue the opposite sex. I wanted to leave my old life. I wanted a life of my own, a life of rebellion. 1966, Star Trek debuts. I was a Trekkie because I had a keen interest in space 
and time and the fabric of the universe. That show really messed with my head because I could not understand the concepts of infinity or eternity. 1967, my parents deferred my plan for the future to the public schools. It was there that I was told, from my perspective, the biggest lie of my life. My counselor introduced me to the Protestant work ethic, work hard, you will be rewarded, success is equated to making a lot of money. Scott, you're good in math and science, therefore you should be an engineer. My plan was made and carried out through four years of college. Unfortunately, that's not who I really was. I'm still kind of ticked about it. 1968, the war in Vietnam is at its height. On my 18th birthday, I was invited by Uncle Sam to sign up for the draft and participate. I cut my long hair and joined the Navy. Interesting. More structure, more control, more uniformity, more fear. 1968, 3.2% alcohol beer. Enough said. July 1969, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. For me, it was my first Romans 1 moment. Romans 1, man's knowledge of the existence of God is innate through the observation of his creation, especially the observations of heavenly bodies. I looked up at a full moon and I realized there's some guy up there walking around and I was struck. God is real. Armstrong took a small step on the moon, but it was the biggest step that humanity had ever taken. One month later, August 1969, Woodstock, the height of my rebellion, with my newly misplaced belief in God, I became what was called a child of the cosmos. It was cool to believe in God. The term for it, interplanetary functionship. I'll let you figure that one out. 1973, the American dream. I graduated from college with my engineering degree. I got married. I got a job. I had no plan for the future. I just thought it was what I was supposed to do. We had three children very close together, girls, built a new home, and I proceeded to climb the ladder of success. 1978, my first real experience with God's love. When my children were little, I'd give them a bath. I'd put powder on them. I'd put them in their fuzzies, read them a story, and then I'd put them to bed. Before I went to bed, I'd go into their room, stand over them, and watch them sleep. No matter what monsters they were during the day, to me, they were so innocent. They were lambs. They were perfect. I'd listen to them breathe, and I thought it was the breath of heaven. God breathing through them. I cannot describe the joy that I felt or the delight that I took in each one of them. 1980, my wife divorced me with good cause. Probably shouldn't gloss over the divorce. I'm really not afraid of talking about it. But it was more complicated and much more painful than I ever thought it would be. No party's innocent, but I afford innocent party status to my ex, generalizing that basically I drank myself out of a spot at the family table. 
From 1980 to 1982, I felt like I had a dark cloud hanging over me. I was ill, very ill. My symptoms included, but were not limited to, heart palpitation, lethargy, anxiety, and insomnia. So I went to the doctor. He checked me out and declared me physically fit. He said I had what was called depression. He recommended that I quit drinking, quit smoking, quit drinking four pots of coffee every morning, quit working so many hours, get some exercise, and relax. I trusted his advice. I did start feeling better, but I couldn't sleep. So I went back to the doctor, and he told me he had a little green pill that would block the beta response of my involuntary nervous system, thus blocking the symptoms. I told him I didn't like green, and I told him that I wasn't interested in blocking symptoms. I wanted to know what the cause of the problem was. Scott, I can't help you with that. It was the first time in my life that I had lost control. That, my friends and fellow control freaks, is a bad feeling. He recommended biofeedback. So I went back to the biofeedback specialist in an attempt to learn how to relax. The biofeedback machine basically measures stress in your forehead through electrodes and sends an audio signal back. High pitch if you're stressed, low pitch if you're relaxed. On my first attempt, I took the machine right down to nothing. The biofeedback specialist said, sorry, Scott, you already know how to relax. The biofeedback specialist recommended a psychologist. I trusted his advice. The psychologist was a very remarkable woman, very kind, very caring. She asked me many thought-provoking and interesting questions. During one of my sessions with her, my watershed moment came. I don't know what we're visiting about, but the lights went dim, and I heard the audible voice of God the first and only time in my life. Now, you would think that if the God of the universe called you on the phone, uh, you'd remember what he said, but I don't. Paraphrasing, it went something like this. Scott, don't you think it's about time you trusted me? It was a profound moment. My counselor experienced, she said, Scott, this is a profound moment. I would encourage you to pursue it. Duh. I literally got out of my chair and drove to a church where I'd once played volleyball and walked in unannounced. Pastor was standing there with nothing to do, just waiting for somebody like me to walk in without an appointment and visit about my personal problems. What can I do for you, Scott? I told him I was looking for God, and then I proceeded to tell Pastor about all the things that I was trying to do to improve my personal life including finding God. He stopped me dead in my tracks. Scott, it's not about what you've done in the past. It's not about what you're doing now to try to improve your personal life. And it's not about the well-intentioned things that you plan on doing in the future. The work's already been done on a cross 2,000 years ago. It's about trusting in the work of Jesus. A free exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness. Aha! 
this is the best deal I've ever heard of. Where do I sign? You don't sign, Scott. You take a step of faith. It was my Neil Armstrong moment. I took that small step, not knowing where it would lead, but I knew at that moment that I'd stepped into eternity. And you already know my story. I gave my heart to Jesus. It quit beating funny. 1982 to 1998, wandering in the desert, my new life in Christ. As I look back at my progress as a believer, God's been very patient with me. I call it wandering in the desert because I continue to walk with one foot in the world, the world I was comfortable with, and now one foot in the world of my new life with Christ, a life I knew nothing about. I continue to struggle with the same issues that I struggled with as a non-believer. I was no stranger to chronic alcoholism, substance abuse, workaholism, absentee parenting, sexual addiction, and low self-worth. And now I had the added image issues of the Christian culture. Christians don't drink alcohol. Christians don't go to R-rated movies. Christians don't hang out with non-Christians. Christians don't get divorced. Christians don't smoke. Christians don't play cards, except Uno. Good Christians vote for Republicans. Christians always go to church and Bible study. Christians don't have sex outside of marriage. Christians only play Christian music. Christians don't eat pre-sweetened cereal. Or do they? I can't remember. And the worst, Christian men now style their hair. The list was long. As I said, I continue to walk with one foot in the world of my old life and one foot in the world of my new life. Looking back, the problem as I see it was twofold. I was still very proud. And now I was proud that the God of the universe had chosen me, modern-day thief on the cross, on his way to heaven. And secondly, I still wanted to be in control of my life. I perceived it as... I was the pilot, and Jesus was my co-pilot. 1985, my fourth child was born out of wedlock. My son, a great joy and a great lesson in humility. And the rest of the 80s and 90s are just a blur to me. 1998, the promised land, my life in Christ. The defining moment of my life in Christ came in 1998, my second marriage. There she is, right out of the blue clear sky. Around Orchard Hill, I'm known as Jean's husband. In her narrative, she described us as John Denver meets Pink Floyd. I'll let you figure that one out. Jean has occasionally wondered why I married her. My stock answer has been that I believe God's plan for my life was marriage and that my plan was singledom and that I was finally somehow being spiritually mature. The real answer, I saw something big in her. I saw something big going on in her life, and I'd finally reached the point in my life where I wanted to be part of something bigger than just myself. I jumped in with both feet. Together, we claimed God's promise in Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and give you a hope and a future. Together, we claim God's promise of a second chance. The definition of a second chance, we are not defined 
by our mistakes of the past. That's what a second chance looks like. I knew married the right girl immediately. I said, we can't afford this trip. She said, we can't afford not to. I've been deferring to her wisdom ever since. We literally set out our Ebenezer stone in the front yard. Thus far, the Lord has brought us. The Israelites built altars out of small stones to commemorate God's miraculous deeds during their journey. Ours took three strong boys and a skid loader to set in place. Since then, we've continued to track God's sightings in our life, the reality of God in our personal life, God's gracious and active presence in the story of our lives. I'm thankful for God's patience with me. Has it been easy? Nope. Has it been hard? Not really. But the shift in my life's been dramatic. From distrust of others to trust in God. From fear to faith. From tight-fisted control to praying hands. From the pop culture to Jesus for everyday living. From vanity to my present-day Jesus cut. And from low self-worth to I am the joy set before him. He stands at the foot of my bed every night and in my case listens to me snore. Thank you, David, for inviting me to share my story. And thank you, Grundy Center. And, uh, have a seat. Thanks. A uh, couple things. A couple things that uh, I want to point out. Uh, those, the picture of all those kids, adult kids, that's his and Jean's total family. And I'm watching them uh, raise their children now. Uh, really, it would be my nieces and nephews uh, for Christ. And, I mean, what a picture of that. Uh, high school graduates, I want to say a word to you. If you actually listened closely, he was 32 years old when he gave his heart to Jesus. He was 48 when he really started to follow Jesus in a strong way. And what we hope is that you can do it at 18 or 19 and save that pain and save that uh, struggle. Uh, I'm going to pray for Scott, and I'm going to pray for anyone in the room who um, was touched by his story. Let's pray. Dear God. God in heaven, God who knows our stories, God who is a part of our stories. God who sent Jesus to a cross so we could have a redeemed story here on earth. Uh, Thank you for the story that Scott was able to share. Thank you for how you were at work in his life before he even knew you. Before he even wanted to follow you, you were at work in his life. You were drawing him to yourself, just as you've drawn many of us to yourself. Father, we want to pray for his marriage. We want to pray for his uh, adult children who are raising their own children. And Father, I pray that you would help Scott finish well in this life. So that one day he would have the experience that many of us want. And that you would greet us at the door of heaven and say, well done. Well done, my servant. Uh, Father, I want to pray for anyone in the room this morning who is touched by a part of this story. For uh, we come to church because we desire to be strengthened and encouraged and challenged and changed.
Father, it's my prayer that someone in the room this morning uh, would be um, encouraged, challenged, changed. And Father, I want to add my prayer to Jen's for these uh, high school graduates. Father, could this season be a powerful time for them? Now hear our words as we continue to sing a worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.